good to see you all. I'll be on vacation for the next two weeks. I'm soaking this in right now. Thank you for being here today. How many of you have seen the TV show Chopped on the Food Network? Chopped. A bunch of you. So Chopped is a reality show. It's a competition show. I love reality TV, by the way, and I won't apologize for that. You can fight with me later if you want to. It's a competition, a cooking competition, where three chefs come on to compete, and they each get a basket of ingredients. And the ingredients are things that don't normally fit well together, right? They're, they're really challenging ingredients to work into one dish. But that's exactly the challenge that these three competitors have to meet. They have to combine all of those ingredients, use all of them, in order to make something that the judges will want to eat and will be good. If you Google image search the ingredient list, you find some really good ones on Chopped that they've used. Here's an example. This was for a dessert, and they had to use fresh pasta sheets, plum tomatoes, basil, and white chocolate in one dish. Eh, it's kind of hard. I can see that being sort of challenging. Let's look at this next one. There's only two ingredients on this one because you don't need any more than this. Italian sausage and tiny ice cream spheres. Ugh. What about this, the next one, the third one? Someone uh, edited this one. Rainier cherries, walnuts, creme de menthe, and canned salmon. I don't know what they made, but they made something. These seem like impossible situations, right? Impossible lists of ingredients to combine into something that anyone would want to eat. These situations that the chefs are in on Chopped could be frustrating for them, and they often are. It could be confusing, stressful, annoying. And sometimes you'll see the chefs on this show respond in those ways. But more than any other way that they respond, they respond with a choice. They choose to play. Not because it's not serious or there's nothing at stake. There's prize money that you win on Chopped. I don't know how much it is. Anybody know how much it is? Yeah, you guys watch Chopped. Yeah, $10,000. See, I didn't know. $10,000, that's a lot of money. That means something to them. This is serious business in a way. I've seen contestants on Chopped in the little interview section. They talk about what that $10,000 will mean for them, right? Sometimes it's buying a home for the first time. I've seen contestants on CHOP talk about how they're going to use that money to help a family member who's being treated with cancer and can't afford their medical bills. And then I go off on a tangent of being distracted by how jacked up our country is, right? That people need to go on CHOPs to win money to help their sister pay their medical bills. But I digress. So there's often a great deal at stake. And that doesn't stop them from approaching this challenge with a spirit of play, with a spirit of creativity and imagination and even fun sometimes. Chopped reminds me of how the family in our movie today responds to their difficult situation. This Sunday, all summer long at Wellsprings, we do a message series called Spirit Flicks. We take a movie, usually a recent movie from the this year or the last year, and we talk a little bit about the meaning, the deeper meaning and the message that could be behind that movie for us. And this Sunday we're talking about a movie that came out last summer, a family movie called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. In case you weren't clear what kind of day this is. <laughs> it's bad. 
It's based on a children's book, actually, of the same name that I remember reading when I was a child. Some of you might know the book. And it begins with this character, Alexander. He's about to turn 12. You can see what kind of day he's having by the look on his face. Alexander wakes up at the beginning of this movie to the beginning of a very bad day. There's a long list of things that happen to him on this day, but I'll give you the highlights. He oversleeps. How many of you have done that recently? I have. He wakes up with gum in his hair. He gets to school, and one of his friends has downloaded an app that will put people's heads on the bodies of bikini models. And so his friend makes a bunch of pictures of him like this and thinks that's really funny, and it goes viral. Everybody's spreading those pictures all around the school. He has a crush on a girl, and he rides carpool with her every morning. And this particular morning, when he goes out to meet her, he trips over the sprinkler on his lawn and falls flat on his face. Then later, he manages to get her to be his partner in chemistry lab, right? Score, yes. And then he sets the whole chemistry class on fire (laughs) with her notebook on the Bunsen burner. But worst of all, Philip Parker, you know that kid's no good, right? Just by his name. Philip Parker had the nerve to schedule his 12th birthday party on the same day as Alexander's. Tomorrow in this movie, the next day, is Alexander's 12th birthday. And Philip's birthday isn't even that day, but he's having his party the same day. And all of Alexander's friends are telling him how cool Philip's party is going to be. I think there's like a Korean taco truck or something. There's a lot of very specific cool details. And all of Alexander's friends, even his best friend, say, sorry, it's just a better deal. We're going to go to Philip's party. So Alexander gets home at the end of this bad day, and he's sitting around the dinner table with his family. And it turns out all his family members have had really good days. Alexander's parents, who are played by Steve Carell and Jennifer Garner, are talking about a job interview that Steve Carell got called for, and Jennifer Garner has a big career opportunity coming up. He has two older siblings who've got great things going on in their lives. He has a baby brother who's even had a good day. He said his first word. And then Alexander starts talking about his awful day, and everyone kind of glosses over, right? They're not really listening. They're not really paying attention. They don't really seem to care. They're kind of caught up in what's going well for them. And it's hurtful for him. And so at midnight, that night, right when the clock turns over to Alexander's birthday, he lights a candle in a Sunday that he's made for himself, and he makes a wish that his family would know what it was like to have a day as bad as the one that he just had. Now, I have a confession to make. I've done this. <laughs> Not literally at midnight with the candle, but, but I've done this. I've gotten mad at someone Right? I've gotten angry with someone or been hurt by someone and said, I wish they could see what this is like. Maybe you've done this too. I wish they knew what it was like to be hurt like this or as stressed out as I am or scared like I am. I wish that person knew what this felt like. It's a weird thing that we do when we do this. It's like a weird 
backwards form of compassion. Right? We want someone to know how we feel. But in this way that's a little bit off kilter, a little bit backwards. Since we're talking about creativity and play today, I'm going to make up a word for it. I'm going to call it depassion. Right? It's like compassion, but it's twisted. And when we're feeling this depassion sense, we think that making the other person understand what this feels like for us will solve the problem. Right? We think that's our way out of the bad feelings that we have. Now, we don't usually have a magical birthday candle to actually make it happen, but we find other ways of making it happen. We might lash out with words that hurt. We might employ whatever levers of power we have to make their lives more difficult, to make them see how we feel. We might passive-aggressively let things kind of fall apart around us so that they have to pick up the pieces. And I know why I do this, at least, and maybe why we do this. Because direct confrontation is hard. Right? When we've been hurt, it's hard to confront someone. It's conflict. It's inviting conflict. It's risky. It's vulnerable for us. And depassion is much safer and easier to implement. Right? When we make an enemy out of the person, thinking that that will solve the problem. It's funny because what we crave is actual compassion. We long to have them know how we feel and to share with us in that feeling, to not be alone in that feeling. And we crave that shared experience so badly that we might actually hurt the ones that we love just to get them to join us down there, to get them to come into the mud with us. Now, because Alexander actually did have a magical birthday candle, His depassion fantasy was much more effective than most of ours. The next morning, both of his parents and his three siblings wake up and have certifiably awful days, relationship-ending days, career-threatening days, soul-crushing days. And by the end of that second day, Alexander's whole depassion thing is kind of working for him, which is how that depassion fantasy sucks us in, right? It kind of works because the old aphorism is true that misery loves company. It's kind of working because as everyone starts to feel bad, the family pulls together. They pull together out of necessity. Instead of making each other the enemy, now they're making other people their common enemy. Suddenly it's the mom's mean, demanding boss who's the problem. Or the oldest son's shallow, status-conscious girlfriend who's the problem. Or the director of the school play who only wants the best, top-notch performance from Alexander's older sister who's sick. When the family makes those people their common enemy then the awfulness becomes more bearable for them. And when things are more bearable, that can be a mercy. It really can. But they're also still a mess. 
you've seen the movie, you know that eventually they all climb into that minivan that's got like a door torn off and the bumper is off and all kinds of stuff are wrong with it. They're all together, but they're not necessarily doing well. They're still stressed out. They're still running scared. They don't have any sense of peace in that part of the story. This is one of the ways that I think we all often try to manage conflict. We redefine our enemy. We come together in some group of people and we redefine that common enemy as some other group of people just to help us get through the bad days, just as a little bit of mercy. We have a lot of patterns for this. We've been managing conflict this way probably since the beginning of time. It shows up in all of our ancient texts, in our religious scriptures. If you've ever been flipping through the Old Testament on a slow day, (laughs) I did a lot of that in seminary. You will see this pattern over and over again. You know, the Old Testament of the Bible is a collection of human stories. That's what it is. It's a collection of stories of people trying to manage their bad days, trying to manage the things that they don't understand that scare them, the conflicts in their lives. And a lot of stories in the Old Testament hinge on the fact that individual human beings who are struggling will come together, they'll form tribes. Right? They'll form groups. It's a lot about how those people in those groups understood their relationship to their God. The thrust of the Old Testament is this long story. I'm boiling it down a lot, but it's this long story <laughs> of people from 12 different tribes. Right, Tribes descended from the 12 different sons of Jacob. And they form these little tribes, these clusters together, and they use those communities to help them survive, to help them navigate the things that make them feel scared or sad or angry. And they learn over time to derive their sense of security and safety and trust in those tribes. And then in the idea that all those tribes could actually unite and become one people together, the people of Israel, through their covenant through the promises that they make to each other and that they believe are also entered into and witnessed to by their God. They believed that that system would save them. Now it turns out there's a whole bunch of other stuff in the New Testament of the Bible, not to mention a lot of stories from other traditions across the globe, from other religious traditions, that contradict this idea that a special relationship between one group of people and their God will be what saves those people. And yet still we've been following this pattern of conflict resolution for thousands of years, right? As long as we stick together, as long as we stick together with our people, we'll be saved. We'll be okay. A poll came out just this week. I think we have a pie chart of it here. It said that 53% of Americans believe that God has a special relationship with the United States of America. More than half, 53%. Lest you think that those 53% are only people of a particular religious bent, a third of the people in the poll who are in that 53%, a third of those people identified as non-religious people. 
And yet they still believe that God has a special relationship somehow with America. Which tells me that this is not about theology. And this is not about where we go to church on Sunday mornings. This is about our sense of vulnerability and conflict. When we engage in conflict, it becomes one of those areas of life where our fear and our attachment to safety and our grasping for security can get the better of our integrity. We might distort or deform or cut corners on what we really believe in order to feel safe. Universalism is what we talk about a lot here in this community. It brings what I think is good news, that all of us actually need all of us to survive. All of us need all of us. Somehow, even when problems seem intractable. That doesn't mean that we don't set boundaries or that we allow people to hurt us. But it does mean that no one is disposable. No one is disposable. No one is an outsider to be destroyed or neglected. This faith is a hard walk. I have days where I'm not sure I believe it. But it is my faith. It's what I set my heart upon. I find it to be more true than the alternative. And it is tough. Sometimes it feels impossible. right? It feels as impossible as making something good out of sausage and frozen ice cream spheres. <laughs> Sometimes we look around and it seems like we have a lot of crap ingredients to work with. Like what we have is just not salvageable. Can't be done. By the end of this movie, everything isn't working out exactly the way that each family member wanted it to. Some things are turning around, but some things aren't. They're not turning around the way that they thought they would at the beginning. And there is a confrontation of sorts towards the end of this movie. The family finds the dad, Steve Carell's character, out back of a hibachi restaurant wearing a pirate shirt that's been burned on the arms up to here. If you haven't seen the movie, go check it out. You'll get the whole story. They find their dad out in back of this restaurant kicking over trash cans, screaming and cursing at himself. He covers it up as soon as they catch his eye. He tries to pretend that it's all okay. But they've seen too much. And so he finally comes clean about what's driving all of his fear and all of his stress, which is really just his unkindness to himself. His insistence that he is the enemy, that he is not good enough, that he doesn't belong, that he's outside somehow of what's okay and what's acceptable. Their dad greets his enemy, finally, with love. I think Jesus said something about that. 
and he introduces his enemy to his wife and kids. He says, it's my job to take care of you guys and make sure you don't have bad days. And when you do, it's on me. It's my job to make sure you don't have bad days and take care of you guys. And when you do, it's on me. It turns out the whole family can relate to that, especially the mom. The same thing that we seek in those deep passion moments, in those moments when we find ourselves saying, I wish they could see what this is like to be hurt like this or stressed or scared like this. He gets that. But he gets it by being vulnerable. Not by lashing out at anyone but by opening up the way to true compassion. Alexander is the one who responds, the 12-year-old. And his response is so blessedly inadequate. I'm so glad it's not like this pearl of wisdom that the movie hangs on. It's something like, you know, you've got to have the bad days so you can love the good ones, Dad. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's true. It's really just a statement of reality, right? All he's saying is that bad days exist, which we know is true. Suffering is real. It's not that deep, but it's true. We can't find a perfect solution, but we can show the kind of compassion that says that all of this belongs All of the impossible situations are here. They're real. I see them too. You're not alone. Let's imagine our way through them together. There's another way that we could run the TV show Chopped, right? That would be perfectly justifiable We could give all of the chefs their baskets full of red hots and reheated calamari. (laughs) And they could spend 25 minutes explaining why that's never going to (laughs) work. Why they'll never be able to make something delicious out of a basket of red hots and reheated calamari and ice ice cream spheres. It would be a much less interesting show. And that's not what they do. They take a good, hard look at the ingredients they've been given, about what sucks about the ingredients sometimes that they've been given, and then they do their best. Even if there are judges up front framing the whole thing as a competition, they ignore that for a minute. They don't pay attention to those judges for a minute. They throw themselves into their calling. They engage the best parts of their creativity, the best parts of their sense of play, the best parts of the thing that they can do that they love to do. And for those of us who watch, it gives us this little charge, right? this little spark of inspiration and fun. We're so curious to see what they're going to do. What are they going to do this time? How are they going to find their way out of this one? Will it work? Will something that seems completely inadequate actually be enough? Could it be 
that it actually all belongs in some new kind of meal that we just can't imagine yet. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of our hearts, holy presence, calling of kindness and love in our lives. Help us to name our bad days. Help us to see and acknowledge that sometimes things just aren't right. We pray that we remember that in those moments when it feels like we're down, stuck in the mud, we pray that you will help us know that we are still worthy, that we are still loved, and we still belong, no matter what it is we have to work with. We are still a part of this greater whole, and we are held by this greater whole in the love and kindness that is always there, even when we can't see it. Amen.